You are tuned into the Dr. Tina Show with Dr. Tina Moore. For more, visit drtina.com. On this episode of the Dr. Tina Show, I finally got to sit down for a chat with my Instagram buddy, Tomo Keith Littlewood. Tomo is an independent researcher and coach helping those with pain, energy, digestion, hormones, sleep, and fertility issues. And he is currently working part-time on his PhD, assessing the role of environmental pollutants and thyroid physiology. On this episode, he dropped some seriously awesome content on the topic of thyroid, and I couldn't wait to get him on the show for a good chat. As always, if you have any questions for the show, please email us at podcast at drtina.com. That's drtyna.com. And if you like the show, please do me the biggest of favors and head over to Apple Podcasts. That's where I'm focused on. You can rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on any of your favorite podcast apps, but I would love if you would do me the favor of heading over to Apple Podcasts, giving me a rate, a review, and a subscribe on there. I'm glad you're here. Let's jump in. Tomo Littlewood, thank you so much for joining me on the Dr. Tina Show. I'm so excited to have you here. I secretly am a super fan, and I have stalked your account for a long time. I learned so much from you. I'm reminded of so much, and you bring a spin to content that I've known that I thought I had mastered. You bring such a unique perspective to it, and I am grateful that you came on today so we can talk all about thyroid. Can you introduce yourself to the audience? First of all, making me blush, but yes. Um my name is Tomo. Uh, my friends uh, call me Tomo. My real name's Keith. I um, fell into fitness originally about 25 years ago after leaving the army and not knowing what to do. And that progressed into kind of rehab-based work and then into functional medicine and then into kind of uh, some neuroscience-based stuff where I was working in rehab. And then I kind of got more into to, to, to scientists like Ray Pete, Hans Selye, Katharina Dalton, and, you know, endocrine and, and biologists, really. And I thought, I, this really resonates with me. And so I went back to university and studied endocrinology. Uh, and I, I kind of worked by coaching people with kind of hormone digestion, sleep, fertility-based issues, but also trying to also do a part-time PhD in the effects of pollution and, and hormones. So, yeah, kind of that's, that's where I'm at these days. I, I've missed a lot out, but just to be uh, concise. Yeah, no, that's great. I I think that the content that you bring is, you can tell that you're well-researched and well-rounded because the way that you, I shouldn't say spin, but the spin you put on this content is, it's unique. And I think that's why, because you have a deep understanding of a lot of different factors that tie together, which is what we need in this world. Nothing is as simple as we want to make it. And it, nothing is as simple as allopathic, reductionistic medicine makes tries to make things. And so... So, okay. So truth be told, the main reason I wanted you on here, I actually believe that the root cause of this pandemic is hypothyroidism or low thyroid. And I'll tell you why. And you probably will agree. One is when you're, I, as a hypothyroid person myself, I have had Hashimoto's for a long time. You know, people come into my clinic and they say, oh, doc, I have Hashimoto's. And I'm like, join the club, right? Like, whoop de doo so, so do all of us. I think that a huge portion of the population is hypothyroid. I have I have generously handed out thyroid hormone in my practice for well over a decade and seen remarkable results. As somebody who specializes in chronic pain management or acute pain management, I realize that I have to thyroid them hard to get them out of, until I get symptom relief. That was far more important to me always than lab markers. And of course, I always tracked with lab markers to be do my due diligence. But 
as a responsible physician, but really symptom relief was my goal. And sometimes that was all over the map when it came to thyroid. I think that the dulling down of one's brain is probably one of the cardinal symptoms of hypothyroidism. And I think that's why we are seeing so many adults make such poor and horrific decisions throughout this pandemic. And I also think that it is a huge contributor to metabolic syndrome, which is also one of the root causes, in my opinion, of the continuation of this pandemic and why it's been so particularly hard on the United States. So that is my thought. What do you think? I think that there's quite a lot of truth in that. Uh, and it, re- it re- also reminds me, I was, I was doing a, an eating recovery podcast just I think it was last night. And we're talking about the choices that people make. And it's like, if you're kind of standing off on a platform where you've got inheritable traits, and we know that kind of hypothyroid mothers pass on those hypothyroid traits to their offspring, and then they're in an environment that's particularly stressful, there's uh, emotional stress, there's chemical stress, physical stress, and particularly the the world as it is, we know there's lots of pollution. We know that, you know, whether it's kind of uh, industrialized um, combustion, whether it's kind of cleaning compounds, whether it's kind of what's in our food, air, water, all of these things converge. And I think with thyroid, and my particular interest is that the, the blood tests are never really productive for a lot of people. And you only have to take something like you know, chronic malnutrition as as disrupting thyroid hormone tests. And, you know, a lot of physicians will say, oh, but they're very specific and sensitive to pick up the test. Fine. But if if there's another blocking factor in there, sensitivity and specificity go out the window because you're you're masking what the thyroid blood tests are actually suggesting. So I I think um, you only have to look at the the driving forces about who is at risk. And it, it is metabolic disease, right? It's glucose uh, regulation, it's, uh, you know, blood pressure regulation, cholesterol regulation, all of the key components that tie into thyroid health. And, you know, and and if we keep looking at kind of thyroid blood tests as being this kind of, you know, gold standard, I think we're missing lots of things out. And, and, you know, even when you're going along and they're saying, you know, we've tested people's uh, thyroid bloods when they have COVID, it's like, you're not going to get an, an accurate representation of someone's thyroid bloods then. If they're ramping up adrenaline and cortisol, you've got all this kind of um, Cox pathways going on. If you've got rampant inflammation, that's when you see thyroid hormones being suppressed, particularly TSH. So TSH can appear completely normal here. You're not going to get a, usual, a, a good representation of where it's at. So I, I do think that thyroid is, and primarily that's why I've gone into the realms of research, because I think multiple pollutants at, at various different levels from the thyroid gland itself, the pituitary responses, the feedback loops, the receptors, the thyroid carrier proteins can all be disrupted at various levels. Not to say that they all kind of merge all at once and everybody, you know, somebody might have high cholesterol, which could be thyroid related. Somebody might just have glucose regulation because the liver has been, imp- or the pancreas has been impacted by, you know, certain pollutants. So I think there's many different tenets to thyroid disruption, yet still many people say, oh, TSH, T4, that appears fine. Nothing to do with thyroid physiology. And so that's why I think there's so much of a problem. And and I think, you know, also that not to to denigrate a lot of physicians because some do some wonderful jobs is that they're taught to think in terms of algorithms. And algorithmic medicine is great for providing single source medications that never get to the root cause, as you and I both know with this kind of stuff. If If you're providing... If you're looking at just cardiac risk and saying, well, someone's cholesterol is really, really high. If you don't understand why the cholesterol is high and you're providing a statin, which could then eventually lead to diabetes, as an example. I remember looking at 
statins 10 years ago and the risk for diabetes progression was one in 250. And now it's one in seven. So not only you're potentially leading someone down the path for worse glucose metabolism, statins seem to aggressively uh, calcify the arteries more than, uh, you know, the problems with cholesterol. Yes, we know that cholesterol can accumulate. There are atheromas, there are blockages, there's damage in the endothelium of the blood vessel. But at the same time, it's going there because there's a problem. It's not the, the, the root driving problem. And this is where I think we could be doing so much better from understanding T4, T3. Uh, and that's what I want to get to is like T3 can probably do some wonderful things, but still that the main stay of thyroid treatment for many is levothyroxine, which in itself has been shown to cause problems. And I'm really interested in some of the research out there at the moment that shows that T4, when it's excessive, can lead to a pro-tumor state. I think that's really, really interesting. And I, I always used to hold thyroid hormones in this high regard as you know, resolving organization. They do add to complexity and stuff. But again, if you're just pumping someone for the T4 and it's not being utilized because the, perhaps there's an issue with the receptor, T3 is not being, uh, you know, it's not going through deiodination to T3. It's always being ramped down to reverse T3. There are some implications of that, of what it can do physiologically. And, and some of the tumor progression markers are quite interesting. Well, that's the standard, right? Just give everybody T4 and call it good. And that's, I, I started practice in 2008 and I've always given a combo of T4, T3, whether I had to have it compounded or I was using desiccated thyroid or what have you. I've done Wilson's protocol with patients, you know, all over the map. And the bottom line is that conversion it doesn't matter how much you medicate it. It doesn't even matter if you get with someone who knows what they're doing with medication, who is well aware of the T3 need. Uh, if you're stuffing your face with garbage all day and you're not moving and you're not taking care of yourself and you're not actively detoxing with something like sauna or exercise or high protein uh, diet, I think that medication, you hit a wall, right? You kind of bonk and hit a wall. So there's, I, patients all the time would come in, I would figure this out. We'd run all the labs. We'd run, I mean, I've been running, you know, free T3, free T4, reverse T3 thyroid antibodies from way back. And you show it to them, they get excited. They think, okay, great. You know, you make an argument why the T4, their doctor's been giving them the levothyroxine has, is probably not the best choice. And they get all excited, but then they don't want to change any lifestyle factors. They just want to medicate and call it good. And they think that the weight will just fall off because we're ramping up their metabolism supposedly through medication. What do you say to that? Because that part has consistently frustrated me. <laughs> That's the part where I'm like, throw my hands in the air. I'm out. And I think that also ties into success of kind of clinical trials that have gone in the past where, you know, uh, studies have said, okay, well, we were looking at subclinical hypothyroidism as an example, and yet they're, they're prescribing T4. And we know there's a problem with T4 on its own because there's sometimes not converted to T3, but you have no idea where that person's living, what food they're consuming. And then you're making this kind of bold statement that treating someone with T4 as an example doesn't affect subclinical hypothyroidism. But if they're chowing down on loads of crap all the time, they're living in a very polluted area, and ultimately they don't want to change those things, how can you judge the efficacy of a treatment when you're, when you, you know, you're not being holistic? And holistic isn't a dirty word. It's just an understanding that you know, there are many factors that are surrounding the problem, and you're choosing to make a bold statement about that, how, how well thyroid hormone works or not. And it's the same thing with the person. If, if you cannot 
get a good foundation and nutrition is the foundation for everything, right? I think we're, we're, everybody's agreed on that. And if you can't get that foundation right, then there are going to be problems. And, you know, it might be something, you know, one of the classic things I see with a lot of my females is skip breakfast, lost appetite, just don't eat in the morning, go and train or throw coffee down their neck to start off with. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> you describe me in a lot of your posts. <laughs> and, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, part of that sometimes might be because they, they hate the idea of gaining weight and try to suppress everything. But if you can't change the nutrition, you can't expect the bigger interventions to always work. And that's one of the problems, I think, in endocrinology, because I, I studied endocrinology with doctors. And, you know, the idea is that, is that hormones are independent of food. But yet I could give you 15, 20 different examples of how food affects um, hormones, right? We know that if you if you miss meals, for example, you'll you'll ramp up gluconeogenesis. So that means you'll produce more cortisol, more adrenaline, and you'll start breaking down fats and ultimately proteins if that gets really, really bad. So if you can't understand that what you're eating and what you're even you know how you think as an example can have a huge effect on that. So if you're not addressing that in any kind of shape or form, then I think you're going to have problems. And and to me, it's it's very very frustrating when somebody's not prepared to do that. I used to get a lot of clients like that now. I seem to attract clients that really are really interested in change. I do get a couple of people throughout the year that do do that, and we kind of don't last together working together very long. And I think that that's quite important. Well, I think what you, when I say that your post described me, you mentioned something which I would love for you to go into, go back to that cortisol piece, because I was running off of cortisol, not by my own really my own, it really wasn't by my own choice it was just my life my career was taking off i was a single mom i was running a very busy practice by myself i was very successful <clears throat> it didn't matter how much i tried to wind that dial down the success kept coming which is a great problem to have but it was exhausting and i was of course then i got more successes and i was more in demand i'm flying all over the place lecturing at medical conferences i'm lifting weights i'm eating well I'm sleeping well, but I am so thin and I can't gain weight and I can't put on muscle mass. And I really was, you made a post about that those high cortisol levels, really driving that cortisol component and it's masking this underlying hypothyroidism and you're just sort of trading one out for the other, which is ultimately leading you into a bigger hole, which... I hit, I left practice, I closed my practice really for various reasons, but one huge one was I just decided to prioritize my own health. That was it. I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't want to take care of sick people anymore that were in pain. So I left practice and I decided to focus on me. And it's been a very interesting, sometimes bumpy ride as my hormones balance out as I'm hitting perimenopause, right? So I'm sort of sitting in this place where like, oh, this is what it feels like not to run on cortisol at a high pitch all the time. So anyway, uh, with that, will you describe what you're talking about and so the audience can understand? Yeah, I think it's a synergy between uh, many kind of converging stresses. And it's like, we, we kind of get used to, I wouldn't say it's just a, a, a you know, I used to think it was exclusively a female thing, but it can, you can see it in, 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 in males and females, but females are more prone to that because there's this kind of effort because, you know, weight is such a big thing for some females, right? They've been conditioned to look a certain way. They've been conditioned to kind of how they should, what they need to buy in, in order to kind of, you know, look successful or be successful. And I think that's a huge component of it because when you get used to the fact that not eating, you think that not eating is, is a, is a, is a, you know, almost like a badge of honor because a virtue. You think, 
yeah, you, you think that not eating is going to help you to kind of keep your weight suppressed. And I think to the extent that, and as you know this, when you're younger, you can get away with a lot more. I used to go out passing to the Ministry of Sound and then go play foot, league football on the next day. And I did that for a couple of years and I came crashing down. And it's the same thing. We get used to being able to run off adrenaline. We, we don't know where our base is. We also kind of start to accumulate many jobs or, or things to keep us busy because we don't know when to stop. And we get used to kind of do something and the next thing and the next thing. And when you actually stop and kind of, you know, just stop for a minute and think, your body gets a chance to shut down and you actually stop producing so much cortisol or you might start eating regular meals. And then you just realize how tired you are because you've been running off adrenaline and cortisol for so long. Feeling fatigued is actually part of the healing process for many people because they're so not used to, to, to experiencing it. And another component is, is the interactions with estrogen. Estrogen and serotonin act in this kind of stress converging pathway with adrenaline and cortisol. And that's part of the problem why a lot of women have premenstrual syndrome, uh, amenorrhea, you know, all of the kind of issues around menstrual cycle where we get high estrogen states coupled with low blood sugar states, coupled with running off adrenaline, running off cortisol, suppression of the project, protective progesterone, and also testosterone as well, and the other kind of useful steroidal hormones like DHEA is an example. So we get used to suppressing all of these. We get used to suppressing how we feel, and we get used to suppressing our ultimately our physiology and optimal aerobic metabolism. How we use glucose is the, the, the you know, it's the, the efficient, it's, an, it's really an efficient marker of biology. How well do you use glucose? And when you don't, when you run off these stress hormones, you're so used to breaking down fats and if it's a really bad state, proteins. And this just this converges to a point where your body can't take anymore. But you've got so used to running off these stress hormones, you don't know where stop is. You don't know where rest is. And ultimately, for a lot of people, you know, you see the loss of appetite. You see insomnia. You see changes to key hormones. Perhaps digestion starts to play up, whether it's constipation or irritable bowel. Many of these things, mood, how we interact with others, and ultimately bring it back to what you're talking about is what we perceive as being right or wrong and the decisions that we make and whether we actually start thinking for ourselves rather than following a herd mentality of what everybody thinks we should be doing. And, you know, there are, I'm not going to go too much into that, but it's like thinking for yourself and making your own mind up about a situation based upon how you actually feel about all of the information rather than a select bunch of information, I think is, is the key to, you know, optimal physiology. It might be glucose metabolism or, you know, being able to understand what you don't need to go out and you need to kind of stay in bed and go to bed earlier or something. All, all of these decisions that we should be making, and we don't like to do them when we're younger because we're scared of missing out. Uh, and so it sometimes takes us a little, a little older to before we become a little bit wiser about what our body actually needs. And we're usually kind of undoing and trying to repair the damage that we put in, put in place over the last decade or two. Yep. Well, my, my wake up was just annual pneumonia. I mean, it, it didn't matter what was happening. I was super successful. I was in the eyes of everyone. I was crushing it, which I was, I was crushing it, but I was literally crushing myself and it was just annual pneumonia. And I thought this is, I'm going to die. Like one of these pneumonias is going to take me out. And it was taking two or three rounds of antibiotics to get out of it. And so when I was about 45, I decided, which was not that long ago, I fully started the process of shutting down my practice and 
getting, and I had been on that trajectory for a few years as I was, that was the thing. I knew I needed to build my online business in order to close my brick and mortar. And I knew that this was coming. I, I can't tell you how or why, but I knew something like what is currently happening was coming. And I knew that being reliant on my income from my brick and mortar was going to be a detriment to myself at some near point. So I decided in 2015 to build my online business. Well, as I was doing that, I was still very busy in clinical practice. You can imagine the load. That's like two separate whole businesses. And I'm a pretty tenacious gal. And I really pride myself on being able to do things that no other human can do, like attending two medical programs concurrently when no one had ever done it before, right? So I'm like, I can do it. Well, as you said, as you get older, these things, you, you don't recover so well. And so right around 45, I decided I was going to actively engage in a cortisol anonymous <laughs> and work very diligently to break my addiction to my cortisol. It is an addiction. And I was doing so good with it. I was really, really, really thriving. My body composition was just so healthy. I was building muscle well. My belly fat was going down. I knew everything was moving in the right direction. Sleep was awesome. Libido was awesome. Relationships, everything was good. And the pandemic hit. And I will tell you how addicted I am to cortisol. The minute the pandemic hit, I went into high gear because my job, that the bulk of my income at the time came from coaching other doctors in how to do digital and online marketing. And there were so many doctors that were being impacted at the moment when everything shut down around here and they weren't allowed to even go into practice. Most didn't even most were still doing paper charts, you know, several were anyway. And I went into high gear. I was like, I can help. I know how to help. And that cortisol rush I got was like the sweetest feeling. And I knew I was like, this is amazing. I feel great. <laughs> and then comes the pneumonia crash, you know, and all the weight loss and the cachexia that comes with it, which when you are a woman, you think it's great. You're like, I'm losing weight so fast until for someone like me who is so actively trying to build muscle all the time. And it's so hard for me to gain for many of the reasons you just described. You know, I turn around one day and my rear end's gone. Like my gluteal muscles are gone. And I was like, well, that's not a good sign. That's cachexia. That's low-grade sarcopenia from chronic cortisol and stress. So these are things that I have realized, of course, so far after the fact that I have done some residual damage to myself. And I say this all because my audience, I think sometimes erroneously assumes that I'm perfect. They're like, oh, Tina's 47 and she looks great and she's crushing it. It's like, yeah, I've got issues just like everyone else. We all do, right? So that's why we do what we do. <laughs> that's why we do this work. So can you can you touch on eating disorders a second? Because in the research I've done, there is a thyroid and other hormones, of course, component to eating disorders. And I don't think people understand this very well, that it's not just a, it's not just a like, hey, I don't want to eat thing. Yeah, I think actually, and I kind of mentioned this recently to someone, it's like, if you go back and look at and read some of the older kind of thyroid researchers like Broder Barnes, what they actually found was, was clinically, the people most likely to have thyroid issues were more anorexic than, you know, we typically think about thyroid people as being overweight, mixedemus, you know, kind of swelling. Uh, and this is the what a lot of people think. A lot of people don't think that being underweight is a, is a, a hypothyroid. They always say, oh, you must be hyper, you must be have a really bad metabolism. But when you dig in, there's the constipation, there's anxiety, there's depression, automenstrual cycles, and all of the things that go to boot with kind of disordered eating. I think there's a comparison there between, say, your kind of, uh, you know, your tri-presentation of the, the, the female athlete, right, who loses the menstrual cycle, who kind of has a lot of these issues coming on. And that's primarily because the workload versus the, the amount of energy they're getting in is not enough to kind of 
facilitate normal function. So I think that we they, they, you can get into a little bit of a, uh, a conversation here about, again, about inheritance, how you're kind of conditioned growing up, what you perceive to be kind of normal uh, and whether you're kind of, whether it's body dysmorphic or, or, you know, how you perceive your body should be. And to an extent, if your thyroid is not functioning properly, you're more prone to either bouts of anxiety or depression or swinging between both. And so the likelihood of there already being some disordered brain chemistry, disordered brain energy, the ability to to perceive the problem in a clear and open mind and work out what the real issue is and what the solution is, is often compounded by the fact that many people are hypothyroid. Now, I think that the the consensus in some research is 5 to 10%, and then if you look at other research, 10 to 20%. I think Technically, we could be looking, and I'm not the first person to say this because well-respected scientists have said, potentially 50% of the world's population could be in some level of low thyroid function. And if we're seeing kind of astronomical cases of whether it's kind of altered kind of brain physiology and ADHD or whether it's kind of anxiety, whether it's disordered eating from anorexia, bulimia, or general starvation, perhaps all of these do tie into auto-brain chemistries and auto-brain physiology, auto-brain energy, as an example. And that's why we're seeing a lot of these things occurring, because we're not able to process with a normal, balanced mind. So that's how I think disordered eating ties into that. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not an expert on disordered eating, and a lot of people are going to agree with me that there. That's my bias on what I perceive to be just one of the problems when it comes to eating strategies. And bear in mind, a lot of that is conditioning. Do you know how many clients you can tend to see goes, my mother used to diet all the time, so I used to diet with her. It's like the, the parents often do provide that kind of very special conditioning vector that sometimes some children are intelligent enough and have had enough emotional support to kind of think about moving away from that. And some kind of just follow and it's indoctrinated into them that they either must look a certain way, they must eat a certain way. And and this is kind of the pathway where some of the problems occur. Yeah, for sure. Well, the depression piece and the, the anxiety depression swing, I think part of that too comes from a little bit of that, uh, well, not even a little bit, but the autoimmune component too, right? So we've got like, I used to swing between Hashis and Graves all the time. I, I didn't understand why through high school and college, and then into a young adulthood, I had a closet from everything from a size two to a size 10. And I would just swing back and forth between a two and a 10. And I would, when I was a size two, I felt amazing. Just amazing. My lights were on. I was obviously having thyroid storms. The anxiety was high, but I felt awesome. I could stu- I really love learning. And so being able to just study constantly and stay up all night studying was great. Uh, I'd get rail thin. Everybody would tell me how amazing I looked. But I always knew that within a few months of the rain starting in Oregon, which you and I talked about off camera, I always knew within a few months of the weather change that I was going to dump out and what was going to follow would be the most horrendous depression that was untouchable, that I could not get away from. And so I spent a lifetime, it felt like a lifetime, on a whole cocktail of different antidepressants that were being sent through me with a psychiatrist who, bless his heart, was a good man, but he loved to give out lithium. And lithium, I I wasn't bipolar. I was 
autoimmune thyroid, right? I was swinging and my moods was were going with it. Lithium tanks out your thyroid. So then it drops you into this chronic hypothyroid state and people say, oh, we don't know how high dose lithium actually controls manic, manic uh, behavior. It's like, yeah, I do. It makes you hypothyroid. So you turn into a lump and you don't want to do anything, right? And then you're super depressed. But that depression is so untouchable that there's no amount of antidepressant medication that could help it. The first time I took thyroid, I took too much. I had a friend hand me a 50 microgram um, of of uh, leothyronine, of T3, and it was a high dose. And I, t- I took it and I felt like I w- had drank a pot of coffee, but then he sent me a text. He said, how do you really feel? And I, I said, oh my God, I feel normal. I feel like I haven't, my brain feels like it hasn't felt since I was 14 before that horrendous depression grabbed me. Like depression grabbed me at 14 and destroyed me for decades. And suddenly I felt normal. And I was like, I don't know how to describe it, but I feel amazing. And so that was the onset of me taking thyroid hormone, which has been a game changer for me. But again, it's not the end all be all. We have to do all the other things to make our thyroid happy and healthy, like we talked about. But that's that's the depression that people just keep getting medicated on top of, and they're in being a lot of it's inducing further hypothyroidism, and then they're eating themselves into hypothyroidism, and it's just this mess that we've got on a worldwide level, but particularly in the U.S. and I'm sure in the U.K. It's like no wonder COVID's hitting so hard in these places. We're we're dealing with like they're literally zombies already, right? Like we are being fed into a slow, fat, and dumb state. And a lot of this comes down to hypothyroidism. Yeah. And I, I, I'll kind of pick up on your kind of uh, role about depression, mood, and also life as well, because, you know, seasonal affective disorder is, is, is really, I mean, people like to, we like to pigeonhole in different things and clinicians like to say, yes, I pinpointed that and I'm going to give it that name. But I think the seasonal affective disorder, ultimately we're losing light, we're losing body heat, we're losing the ability to have autonomous conversion of hormones like thyroid hormone. We're probably, and for females more particular as well, not producing as, no, as much progesterone, which is eff- effectively the, the antidepressant hormone for females. And that's why postnatal depression has been treated very, very well with adequate amounts of progesterone. And for any ladies that haven't read the books by Katharina Dalton, who was one of the first medical doctors back in the 50s, who kind of you know looked at um, progesterone therapy with depression, they, they, there are many factors that conversion. I think the loss of light, it not only kind of feeds into why people <laughs> succumb to viruses in winter because they get colder, their biology is less efficient, their immunity is at a much lower level. And so the, the thyroid is actually suppressed as well. And that's why, like yourself, for example, you say when it gets cold, when the light's lost, you know, people get depressed because perhaps thyroid hormones is not being looked at efficiently. And, you know, in, in some uh, psychiatrists and, uh, and other psychology papers, you can see that there's a, a, a movement to say that perhaps around about two and a half from a TSH perspective is useful to look at, which is on a par with pregnancy kind of values. You know, a lot of clinicians will say that your, your, your TSH is around about two to two and a half. I, I think you really need to kind of consider thyroid here. But yet for Joe Public, it's like, well, four and a half, five, you're still normal. It's okay, but you've got a point here when you know that you're trying to support the growth of a fetus. That, that needs adequate thyroid hormone. How is kind of growth and regeneration of tissue any different? Yep. 
So you've got to be looking at the same point. And I think TSH should, should be much lower than that. And another component, I think, which is probably contentious, I don't see thyroid antibodies as being anything more nefarious than damage to the thyroid that needs resolving. So when you're seeing thyroid antibodies like thyroid peroxidase, uh, thyroglobulin antibodies, you know, you're seeing sometimes rampant oxidation in the thyroid gland that's happening. So I've seen many clients whose antibodies have just changed, but just by resolving food, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's that's quite a powerful statement to make. If you look at some of the components, there's a uh, Polly Maxinger who came up with a danger theory, uh, and it was based upon Jamie Cunliffe's work. And it hasn't got much kind of uh, airplay in clinical circles, but the idea, and Polly Maxinger actually works at the National Institute of Health, saying that the, the immune system is actually quite adept at recognizing what's going on. So it produces antibodies so that it dismantles tissues so that it's not used as cancer substrates for bacterial energy sources, viral energy sources. So if we produce thyroid antibodies, the body's not attacking its own thyroid gland. It's taking the tissue that needs to be dismantled and taken away so it can't be used by any nefarious pathogens that might be lurking around or, you know, progressions within tumors, as an example. So I think, you know, understanding that food can have a knock-on effect not just kind of mood states, but how you'll kind of organize your tissues from a from an optimal perspective. But I think I think the mood thing is particularly important. And, and you know, it, it breaks my heart when people are kind of put on selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors without actually knowing how much serotonin you have. Nobody gets tested for serotonin. Nobody, nobody goes in and tests, and you can't because you're talking about central nervous system levels. You can go and do something like an organic acids test and maybe look at serotonin turnover, but it's it's pure guesswork. And you know everyone still thinks of serotonin as happy hormone, but it's a stress neurotransmitter. It's one of the first neurotransmitters that's upregulating the stress response that activates the adrenal response. It's one of the primary neurotransmitters that keeps you awake at night, brings you out of that deep phase REM sleep. Serotonin is a wake on neurotransmitter. It's not a sleep on neurotransmitter. And that's, you know, that's why taking SSRIs is associated with insomnia. Uh, And especially, you know, you have to wait sometimes months to see an effect. Well, perhaps that effect could just be that your body's so pissed off with having to accumulate more serotonin uptake it, the pathways are upregulated to keep turning it over more. And that's why you're not seeing an effect for months. And that's why I think getting brain energy right, neurotransmitters, bear in mind all the other neurotransmitters like dopamine uh, receptors are all improved when someone's made euthyroid from being hypothyroid. Mm-hmm. So mood states, I think, is one of the, the, the first to, to change. And also, I, I think some one of the, the, the bouncing back from anxiety to depression is sometimes related to obviously how much food you're intaking as well, right? If you're chronically going through skipping meals or not eating enough, and you're running around typical kind of housewife who's got so much on and trying to look after the kids, doing the school runs, doing everything else, or just a busy, busy businesswoman, same thing, same concept, low blood sugar levels. And when you keep going through that, one of the first, you know, things that you experience from a, 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 a low blood sugar state is a rush of adrenaline and cortisol, right? It's like having a cup of coffee on an empty stomach. That's that coffee. I think coffee is a wonderful compound. But if you're constantly having it without food, there's no wonder that you feel irritable and anxious, right? You're kind of trying to pump a Ferrari full of fudge. It's not going to go anywhere. It's like, 
you need, that's so you funny need adequate, I, I, adequate energy to make that work i always say fill in a porsche with mountain dew but see <laughs> well, i, I just couldn't think of anything at the time I just no i love it off the cuff I love it. No, it's so true. It's so true. These things all dance together in an orchestration that is fine-tuned. And it's for the audience who doesn't understand. So interestingly, Prozac, right? So Prozac was developed in the 80s and I was put on it like within the first year it came out as a teenager. And Anytime I take even the lowest dose of Prozac, I feel amazing. And so I got really interested in microdosing it, to be honest with you, like super low milligrams, because I took it one day in the throes of a very deep depression, again, had hit me in 2013 when my mentor died, and I was not coming out of it. Like I was just in a, I was just in a bad state. And of course, my practice exploded the second it happened. So I'm, I'm seeing gads of patients five days a week and I go home and I've got a little girl to take care of and I'm crashing. And I, so I'm like, all right, I'll go back on it. So I went on it, low dose, 10 milligrams. And I felt, and I have had so much experience playing with adrenal support and thyroid support and different progesterone, of course, and different hormones. I felt so good on it, just 10 milligrams within hours. I felt this amazing, it felt like adrenal support. And I called my friend. I'm like, this is the best adrenal support I've ever taken. This is amazing. And I started researching, and you might look into this too, just the, the SSRI's impact on the HPA axis. And so I thought, huh, this is interesting. And I was, I had been, uh, introduced to this idea of drop dosing herbs and taking very low, low doses of different herbs to have an impact on the body, which I thought was lunacy when I first heard this presented at a conference. So I thought, well, I wonder what happens if I take, if I drop dose Prozac. And so I bought the liquid form and I took just the like 2.5 to 5 milligrams a day. The results were phenomenal and immediate. So for me, SSRIs work immediately. There's no I mean, they have pulled me out of down. And I'm, not, I'm not disputing. They don't have a kind of, for some people work very differently. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they, so for some people, they can take weeks and months before you see an effect. Some people can, and it's like with anything, I don't, I don't mean to kind of rubber stamp everything with absolutism. Oh, sure. I, I, there are certainly variances to that for sure. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. No, no, no worries. The other thing that these SSRIs do is they help neurodegen or neuroregeneration. They Literally, if you've had a stroke or some kind of traumatic brain injury, SSRIs, particularly Prozac, have, has been studied to have a, an awesome neuroregenerative effect on the brain, on the neurons. It's protective. So it's really interesting how, again, I mean, I'm only saying this to show that what a dance these neurotransmitters are with our hormones, with our diet, with all the things. That's why when people say, what do I take for this? And I'm like, there's no taking a thing for a thing. Like you have to get your health in order. <laughs> you have to get your shit together comprehensively, which I know is very overwhelming for most of the public and can feel like a very daunting task, especially if they've been sort of eating the standard American diet and slothing through life without really any agenda of health like how how can we help people start to turn that like what are some of your key pieces of advice when you are working with a client to get them to start turning that shit maybe something say as simple as like you said eating in the morning or starting to introduce food at different times yeah i mean i i use temperature and pulse evaluation because it's a really good starting point for people and when they can see you know there are various nuances to it but a classic theme is low body temperature in both the mouth and the armpit 
and low pulse, well, that's a good sign that the energy needs working. Then you might see kind of like a, a low body temperature with a really high pulse suggesting that they might be running off adrenaline as an example. And, you know, there are various things to work at. So I think understanding what your body's telling you is a great place to start. And then for some people, you know, I, I like the idea of five to six meals a day. It's a pragmatic stress response, but some people do better with three square meals a day. It's just kind of giving the body some regular fuel. I think getting on top of sleep is, is the big one. I do think understanding what are the, the things that are around you that are breaking you down. And for a lot of people, they're quite um, unaware of some of the key hormone disrupting things, quality of air, potentially electromagnetic stress and frequencies, uh, you know, a variety of things that can break people down. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And, you know, air pollution is a huge thing. So, you know, looking at quality of, of air in your local environment is a good one understanding kind of what things you have in your house that might break you down. You know, you might be having an old scratch Teflon pan that you use that's leaching perfluoroalcohols, which is a, a huge thyroid disruptor. And there are all these many things that I try and drop different lessons for different people that I think are the key things. But I think restoring gut health, restoring energy, restoring sleep, getting the menstrual cycle back on track or T levels back up with guys, whatever, whatever that is. Uh, and uh, just being um, not so reactive to the environment, you know how some people kind of like are snappy, or just not able to take new information on. They're very dogmatic about their nutritional beliefs, as an example. Uh, so I think I'm just understanding that success is built on being able to experiment with new things. You're clearly coming to me with a history of stuff not working. So this is an opportunity for you to go and experiment. Something I might recommend might be totally wrong and have totally not the right effect that I was looking for. But that's the press. I don't know absolutely everything. I get a good idea from the intake forms and looking at the temperature and pulse and the, the bloods and stuff, but I don't know absolutely everything. So I think it's mostly people who are perhaps coming with chronic issues. And most people know that they're not just going to wave a magic wand and everything's going to disappear. It's just about looking for those baby steps. And it might be from getting your nutrition right. It might be using supplemental hormones. It might be kind of managing your environment. Um, you know, I think that the key things of digestion, energy, sleep, mood, libido are probably the good markers that are evidence of success for most people. I love that. I love that. I, I find that if people start moving... I know that energy can be low, but if they start moving and they start sweating, things start to shift quickly. And if they're not sleeping well, there's no point in even having a conversation about sleep optimization if they're not moving regularly. And if they're not eating, I, I prefer personally, and I've seen this clinically, a few less meals. I try to get people down to like at least a feeding window, a reasonable feeding window. They can eat as many times as they want in there, but a feeding window and not, and, and I'm trying to get them off grazing because people will just, I think that grazing, well, here, let me back up. I think, and, and you can tell me what you think about this too. I have found for my own thyroid condition that actually fasting, when I'm in a super low slump, when I'm just like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I feel horrible. Everything hurts. I'm dying. Everything's just going belly up. The first thing I do is increase my thyroid hormone prescription. I start taking more thyroid just to kind of get my brain. I just need a few more circuits in the brain working so I can figure out what to do next. <laughs> That's like step number one. And without fail, if I run lab markers at that time, my TSH is elevated. So I know I'm in a hypothyroid state. But the second thing I do is go into a uh, more of an intermittent fasting sort of scenario because the the grazing all day long 
I feel really can tank the thyroid out. It just sort of slogs along if they're not eating well, right? Who knows what they're grazing on all day? If they're eating nutritiously dense food, I'm sure it's an entirely different story. But getting people to actually just function within a feeding window only because it helps them with their sleep and their priorities as well, because they've sort of got to do everything within that feeding window. Life just became, life just, you know, your day just sort suddenly got some boundaries on it. <laughs> You've got to like get your shit done within this window. And I found that to be really helpful. I, I d- it doesn't last. I think prolonged fasting, prolonged ketosis, prolonged, those things can be really damaging to the thyroid. You feel awesome for a hot second until you bonk. So what do you think about, I know you've posted about low carbohydrate. That's what I'm leading into. I do love the carnivore diet. I do love a high protein, high fat, low carb diet for myself personally. I feel fantastic. My gut feels better. Everything feels, my joints feel better. But I know that you've posted before. I mean, restricting carbs can be really detrimental to the thyroid. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, well, well, if you take fasting as an example, one of the the the, the very well-known responses is, you know, deiodination to reverse T3, suppression of T3 from T4. Uh, and that can be, I, I think fasting, and I, you know, a lot of the work, I, I look at a lot of Ray Pete's work, and he led me on to some really great other scientists. And a lot of people take the idea that I think, like I said, if you've got someone who's really messed up, and they come from a history, they've been trying to fast, they've been trying to do keto or carnivore, and they messed up. I think eating five or six meals a day is a great way of just getting in there and saying, your body is going to just feel great because it knows it's getting regular feeding. You're going to be avoiding those dips. Some people have been kind of in gluconeogenesis for so long. So they're producing loads of adrenaline, loads of cortisol. Their body doesn't know where it's guessing. And I think regular eating can be very, very useful to start off with. I don't think it's necessarily great to keep doing that. And I, I, I think sometimes getting away, as I said, to the three square meals a day can be useful. I think fasting can work well for people in the short term if you're metabolically flexible to handle it. Because you see a lot of people that go into fasting, and I've had countless people said, my hair started falling out, I lost my menstrual cycle, my T levels tanked, I got constipated, and it really just does depend on the person. Um, And I I think to the extent, it's like a lot of people still see fasting as this, um, this, you know, factor for increasing longevity and i think if you just even anecdotally if you look at people who are living into their hundreds they're not they're not fasting crossfitting paleo people they're people that eat and ate a little bit of everything they have regular energy intake they probably do regular exercise you know they have something that keeps them going but i don't think we're going to see an, an, an abundance of these kind of heavily fasted carnivore people who are living into their 90s and 100s primarily because when you start breaking down fats and proteins all the time it does come at a metabolic cost and that's why with carbohydrates the production of carbon dioxide from the respiratory quotient we know that using fat as a fuel is is not as efficient as carbohydrate because it doesn't produce as much carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide is a, is a is a self-fulfilling and often rate limiting factor for aerobic metabolism so being able to we go back to that point at the beginning being able to utilize carbohydrates is is a sign of an efficient optimal metabolism now a lot of people will kind of fast and drop back and say i'm doing this because my blood glucose is wayward Probably nothing to do with the sugar unless you're chowing down buckets of kind of uh, coke every day on its own without anything right if you eat an excess of sugar sure you're going to eat have problems with you know pancreatic function but equally pollution has a huge impact on on blood glucose levels and, and and 
pancreas function and even in pancreatic enzymes and pancreatic an antibodies. So a lot of people make the mistake of going, I'm going to cut out sugar just to make my bloods look better. And that's great. And they can temporarily make them look better, but it doesn't get rid of the issues that's there in the first place. And that can come creeping back again. So I think understanding why your blood sugar levels are wayward, and we come back to thyroid again, because no thyroid stimulates the pancreas to produce or insulin. And when that, that pathway gets messed up, we can start to see that the onset of kind of type two diabetes. And so I think there can be, I think fasting is a really good tool for people that overeat because you know, they like to binge a bit and then they realize they're eating too much and they go and fast. That's probably not a, ha a good habit to be in. But if you can keep, if you're metabolically flexible enough to maintain that, I, I don't have any problem with it. And, and I, I don't think food restrictions necessarily a bad thing. I think the key marker of whether that works for you is how well you sleep. Because I've seen too many people that having a snack before bed or if they're waking up early in the morning, and they feel hungry because some people wake up two to three and they're actually hungry. That's why they can't back, get back to sleep. It's often that you haven't got enough energy in throughout the day. And that's mm -hmm. where having a snack at nighttime, glass of milk, some honey, some gelatin, you know, something like that can be really, really helpful for maintaining sleep because waking up can be just simple enough that your, your blood glucose stores and your liver stores are being conserved for the brain. So you're going to stimulate gluconeogenesis again, this stressful response of producing, you know, uh, energy from fats and proteins. And if you wake up at night with a surge of adrenaline, you can't get back to sleep. It might just be that you haven't had enough uh, food within the day and therefore regulating your blood sugar responses throughout the night. So I think using sleep as a marker to see if that calorie restriction fasting is working for you is a really good kind of uh, into whether that's working or not. I Does love that. Make that. Sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. I, I get you. I was, that actually was just happening to me. <laughs> I was waking up at three in the morning and I was like, Hmm, I need more food before bed. And so adding a little bit of carbohydrate and protein before bed has been a game changer. With all this talk about thyroid, I think it's important to note that a lot of thyroid issues are autoimmune. And a lot of that comes from a chronic low grade inflammatory process happening for the person. Uh, well, I'm not telling you how to treat or cure or prevent any illness, I can tell you that one of my favorite supplements to prescribe to my patients and that I take personally every day to keep inflammation overall low is my Curcuflame. Flame. This is a product, you've probably heard of curcumin before, I'm assuming. Curcumin is actually a naturally occurring curcuminoid that is from turmeric, which is an herb that is widely used. Turmeric is not absorbed well, and curcumin in general is not absorbed well, but my product has been formulated with a particular type of curcumin called BCM95, which has been shown in clinical studies to have a very high absorption rate. These curcuminoids have all kinds of wonderful benefits on the body, and there are easily over 600 studies and that's not even counting the more recent years that have been put out on the benefits of curcumin. I'm sure you've heard of it before. So head over to my store and use the coupon code CURCUFLAME. That's C-U-R-C-U-F-L-A-M-E 10, CURCUFLAME 10. And that'll get you 10% off on this product today. The store is at store.drtina.com. Head over there. Use the code CURCUFLAME10 and grab your bottle today. 
Um, so I, I want to go back to something because you and I have the same problem. We talk about this stuff and there's a lot of things I don't talk about online. One is diet. I do not discuss food because people freak out. People freak out about food. They freak, they, they, I mean, militantly, violently freak out. I, I, the other day I had to block a woman because somebody mentioned carnivore and she attacked him. And I was like, that's rude lady. You got to go. So she had to go. But the other piece that I don't speak of is the, the point you've made several times throughout this conversation is thyroid is necessary for this, that, and the other. We, we can do so much. And I love, I love that there are health coaches and influencers out there online talking about like, oh, reverse your whatever condition through diet and supplements. I, that's all gr- good and great. But where is the line where somebody just needs some thyroid hormone and they need to find someone to work with to actually get some thyroid hormone? Because we can go around and around and around, but if somebody's adrenals are tanked out or their endocrine system's bottomed out, they may actually need some hormonal intervention. And that's hard for me because I don't see patients and I'm not going to do the hormonal intervention for them. And I don't, I can't easily always find a practitioner. Well, I don't even, I don't make personal referrals for people, but people cannot always find a practitioner in their area that's really willing to work with them on this kind of functional level. What do you say about that? Because I'm sure you run into the same thing on your account. Um, I, I'm not a doctor, um, uh, so I can't prescribe. I can't you know, make any, uh, any inferences. I, when people work with me, I give them enough information. So they're educating themselves. And I say, here's the resources. This is where I think you're at at the moment. This is how far we're going to see we can take you by changing the food. And there are a certain amount of people and a significant amount of people sometimes that just don't respond well enough to nutritional interventions. Mm -hmm. And, And these are the people we're talking about. I give them enough information that they're either going back to their doctor and getting support that way, or they're just, They've got the resources about where they can order from and take charge of it themselves. I'm more in the camp of educating people mm-hmm. to, to make the decisions themselves and not be reliant on me. And, and that's what I really want my clients to be is to a point where they've got enough information out of me. They go, I should be trying this. This is something that I should be kind of looking at. And I, I, you know, I, I also think I had this conversation with someone last night as well is that there's too much emphasis on thyroid being this dangerous thing that, you know, humans should stay away from. And doctors are the only people that are allowed to look at this because we're physicians, goddammit. You know, it's kind of like when you actually understand that most people, even cardiovascular surgeons now who are doing reperfusion surgeries where they retach the arteries because they become blocked, say that you need a certain amount of T3 to make that function. Otherwise, if there's not enough thyroid hormone there, you're going to get all these kind of negative peroxides and and metabolites of the heart not working because it will end up going into glycolysis and you don't want, um, you know, you don't want to keep producing loads of lactate. So they know that having adequate thyroid hormone is key. Now, you can, if if you go around, you can get, there's plenty of books and stuff as well where I've taken some of the stuff that I've learned. So if you start on a very low dose of thyroid hormone, and you're indicated for that, low temperatures and pulse, perhaps your bloods might show it, perhaps they might not, is that you, you're never going to go hypothyroid just taking a small piece of, of, of a thyroid hormone. And if you do, you know pretty much straight away that, that you shouldn't be taking it. So mm-hmm. I'm more about educating clients, and I give them so much research and thought processes behind it that they instead of going, and I do get the old person that says, I'm really not comfortable about looking at this without my physician. Or I get a lot of people who say, 
I, okay, I can see where my problems have been. And I think I've been like that for decades now. And I see a way out of this and, or, and they're kind of willing enough to experiment. And I, and I think that's something that people should be either prepared to do or not prepared to do, or find someone else on top of that for, you know, extra support. Uh, but I, you know, I have coaching programs and there's a, a client group where kind of everybody's talking about things that they've done in the past. So there are plenty of places out there where you can order these from. Um, and I kind of provide clients that, you know, sources that they can get that. Um, that again, and there are plenty of other kind of like-minded people that around the world where they can get extra support from. But it's actually quite easy to, to get these things. It depends where you live. Uh, Mexico seems a really good place to for getting stuff at the moment. Um, it's true. And, and Sinoplus and Sinomel are my thyroid hormones of choice. I used to do really well on natural desiccated thyroid, but I found Sinomel and Sinoplus, which are kind of almost as close to the original armor uh, brand that used to be really, you know, um, productive uh, and did what it said on the tin like 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I think the other brands now have kind of, you know, that sometimes the quality isn't as good as it could do. So I think it's, you know, for most people being able to understand once they've read it themselves. And that's the thing we talked about earlier on about how people sometimes just don't want to make the change. They want to live in someone's pocket and they want to be handheld all the time. I want my clients, you know, I'm really passionate about saying, look, I can get you there. I can kind of take you on the journey of it, but this is now you taking care of yourself and, and understanding why you've got to the place you are in the first place because you haven't been listening or you've been trying too many different things at once and understanding that you, you're ultimately in charge of creating the change. I might lead you to in, down a certain path, but, you know, most people have to kind of take that path and walk it within themselves. And I, I sound like a big cynic, but... And you and I have very similar values on what's going on globally at the moment. I think the pharmaceutical company has, you know, even when it comes down to thyroid as an example, the reason why it's assessed the way that it's assessed is because it, 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 it you know, decreases profits in certain areas of single source medication. Um, and this is the thing. I'm a big fan of Ivan Illich. Uh, I'm a big fan of that. I don't know if you've ever come across the book of um, Drugs for Life by Joseph Dummett which mm -hmm. very much talks about, you know, SSRIs and getting people um, kind of hooked into the drug for life. Uh, and this is what even Illich used to talk about is like the, the person is turned into a patient at the checkup. Yep. And, and it's like trying to, and that's what business is about. It's trying to get you from cradle to grave and think you have to kind of buy into this medical consumerism and think that, that the only person that's capable of making decisions is a doctor. Is yep. someone that doesn't know actually know anything about your health. They know how to prescribe a medication for a certain condition, which in some cases can be helpful. But a lot of the time it's like, you know, plugging the hole uh, where the hole is kind of rupturing somewhere else. And I think, I think that's really important for, for people to understand that they are in control. They're more than capable of looking after themselves. Uh, unfortunately, some people don't always want to go down the route, but I, I do find these days that a large majority of people are, and they're very kind of information hungry. No, I love it. That brings up something I wanted to talk to you about before we close. High cholesterol, cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis, congestive heart failure, those are all side effects of being low thyroid for long periods of time. I mean, if you're subclinically hypothyroid and you're a female, your risk of having a heart attack goes up like 200 and something, 50 something percent. So I could not figure out throughout the course of my practice, my clinical practice lasted from about 2008 to 2018 before I stopped seeing patients so much or started phasing them out. 
I prescribed a lot of thyroid in that time, mostly desiccated, or like I said, compounded. I could not believe the push from the medical establishment. I'm a naturopathic doctor and in the United States and Oregon, I have full prescribing rights. We just do root cause medicine. We're not, it's not an allopathic model. I could not believe the pushback I was getting. I would get notices from pharmacies saying, your patient's over 65, you prescribed armor, it's dangerous, it's dangerous, it's dangerous. And I, and I, the other thing I want to say here is that the rates of dementia, if we gave every person in an old folks home a tab of armor every day and a B12 shot once a week, we would not have these rates of dementia at all. Nowhere near it. Going into a hypothyroid state as you age looks exactly like dementia. And so talk about I mean, man, talk about these drug companies making a, a patient for life, you know, a consumer for life. Statins are the number one prescribed drug in the United States. If people were actually taking thyroid when necessary, and I'm talking in childhood, like I should have been put on thyroid when I was 13, when I, you know, 12, 13, I'm very clear if you look at photos of me that I was dropped into a hypothyroid state as soon as my hormones started to shift, right? And so, as a young woman, it's it's crazy to me the amount of conditions that have patented medications that are super expensive that are actually a hypothyroid symptom. And thyroid, what armor costs like a, a couple cents to a couple bucks on the pill, right? It's so cheap. B12 is so cheap. There is a connection. We don't have to go into it, but the B12 thyroid connection is real for people listening in. And it's it's just crazy to me how we have this pharmaceutical industry pushing these lifestyle drugs for lifestyle conditions that are caused by lifestyle, but thyroid's a huge component of it. That's a huge reason why I wanted to bring you on the show is because I talk so much about metabolic flexibility and metabolic health and avoiding you know death by Rona if you're... D- you know, cleaning, cleaning up your lifestyle, but a huge piece of this often for so many people is that need for some kind of support in the thyroid world. So what do you think about that? I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think cleverer people than you and I with very well-respected uh, roots and, and foot in the door of clinical research have thought the same thing and had their medical licenses taken away from them. Dr. David Derry, who was in Canada, who was a very well-respected clinical researcher, who said, I just don't, I just don't treat people based upon their TSH because it takes so long to come up into frank and over hypothyroidism, and they've been suffering for years. So why would you look at that? And he had his medical license taken away. A doctor in the UK, Dr. Barry Durham Peatfield, was the same. He's written a book called uh, uh, On Thyroid as well. He, he, he suffered the same fate and he had to resign his medical license. And it's like, just even looking at the main point you talked about, dementia is a low thyroid issue. Parkinson's is a low thyroid issue. There are certainly nuances with that. But if we talk about, I mean, people talk about Alzheimer's and dementia as being, uh, was it type three diabetes? Another kind of cliquey name. It's like you can't use glucose efficiently. Yep. And you see that there is rampant oxidation, inability to use glucose in the brain. The brain loves to use glucose. When you take that away and you start having to, um, you know, oxidize fatty acids chronically, you are going to do more damage to the brain, to the neural connections, to the ability to, to, to regenerate neural connections. And this is why you start to see things like, you know, beta amyloid. I mean, beta amyloid isn't necessarily a bad thing, but when it misfolds into this kind of protein that, that's very structurally sound, that is a very, um, has a strong implication with not just thyroid, but there are many environmental pollutants that kind of look around that. You look at like Christopher Exley, who's done it, look, looked at his work on Alzheimer's and um, 
uh, aluminium as an example, that can have it be in, like an antithyroid effect. And when you start to accumulate these metals, these environmental pollutants, and they have this thyroid suppressive pathway, it's no wonder, actually, I think one of the the latest suggestions that was dementia was the one of the highest um, risk factors for, for Rona. I, I'm not sure if that's true, but the last time I looked, it was, is that that's where we're seeing some of the, the, the dramatic deaths taking place. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I do think I've seen quite a few papers where you've seen dementia uh, and Parkinson's improve substantially. Um, I've even seen some, some interesting ADHD papers uh, where kind of, you know, th- improving thyroid has kind of, you know, ameliorated the, this kind of chaotic state within the brain. That is my cardinal symptom is my ADHD kicks in and I can't, I can't do more than, I mean, I, it's my superpower. My ADD is my superpower. I can do like eight things at once really efficiently. And as my thyroid starts to wane, I look like a bumbling old lady and I have to have my assistant remind me of everything. <laughs> And that's usually the funny thing about being low in thyroid is you've got my, I had a doctor once describe it this way. You've got an eight cylinder engine, but you're only running on four cylinders and you don't know it yet. And so you're always behind the curve. It's usually about, you know, usually I'll catch it within seven to 10 to 14 days that something's going on. And for the audience listening, I have found clinically, I don't, I don't know about you, uh, Tomo, I think that the seasons changing definitely impact the need for thyroid. So as we walk into winter, I have classically had to increase patients' doses of thyroid. As we as summer came, we were able to lower that dose. Um, and so going with the seasons, but sometimes I'll be a month or two in and I look in, the, I, it's usually because I look at a photograph or I'll look at a video of me and I'm like, geez, I was so hypothyroid and I didn't even notice it. And that, that looks for most people, a coarsening of the tissues, puffiness around the eyes often. Um, and like you said, for some, I mean, that's why I was missed for so long. I was so thin. I was so thin and I was so anorexic and bulimic. And I think that the low thyroid has a component to that low appetite because like you said, you don't have good digestion. You don't have good pancreatic output. So everything hurts when you eat it. And you kind of go into this tailspin, which perpetuates it. And so a lot of people are missed out there. I think a lot of people are being mismanaged. I think you are absolutely correct. There has been a concerted effort on physicians to destroy them. I became a naturopathic doctor for the sole reason that I did not have to abide by standard of care. I have to abide by best practices. I actually can treat somebody prophylactically assuming a disruption in thyroid as long as I follow it up with lab testing. And so there's a lot of leniency that being a nature, I have to be prudent and I always am, but it's important that people understand that MDs, at least in the United States, MDs are held to a standard of care. Oregon doctor that I know of had his license revoked just for prescribing armor, just for prescribing desiccated and not doing the standard levothyroxine. It's crazy. They have they have got to abide by a you know, pill for every ill. If you have this ill, this diagnosis requires this pill. And if you don't do it, you are breaching the standard of care and you can have your license revoked. It's wild. And why has why have they villainized something? I mean, what's the worst case that can happen? Yes, there is risk in elderly folks of cardiovascular issues. And yes, there can be some osteoporosis if you're cranking thyroid all the time. But for the most part, ODing on thyroid, you just feel like you took too much and you back down. It's not, I have no idea why it's been villainized the way it has. 
I, I, I've, I share a case of a, a, a client of mine who just basically didn't <laughs> not read any of the information I gave her. Uh, and she was taking a, like a liquid uh, thyroid that she purchased and decided to use herself because obviously I didn't tell her to do that. Um, and she decided to take 10 squirts a day instead of 10 drops, which was she should have been taking a 1, 1. 1.5 grains and she took 10 grains a day. And she was she was young. She was like 32, 33 and she goes, my heart rate's gone up. I said, look, it's going to go up over the next couple of days. Stop taking it now. Eat some undercooked broccoli. Her heart rate went up to 160 the next day. And then it came down to 110, 90, 80, 70 the very next day. And you're absolutely right. If you're an older person or even a younger person at extreme risk of myocardial infarction, if you take too much at once, it's almost just like taking too much stress at once. You're going to have a negative effect mm-hmm. because your system is just not – um, able to deal with that. Now, most of the time, that is totally avoidable um, for, for anyone. If you listen to what's being said, and even if you listen to um, a lot of the, the, the protocols or suggestions out there, it's totally avoidable. And usually, when people are looking at that, there are indications they need to take it anyway. So that you know, there are clear indications of when it's needed and what it's not. And you know, like I say, I'm not a doctor. I have a master's and a postgrad in endocrinology. I'm doing a PhD in endocrinology. I'm not qualified to do that. I give people the information to make the choices on their own because mm-hmm. they are more than capable of doing that. Um, and I, I do think it, it is it, it's vilification of thyroid hormone that is actually, it's, it's probably one of the most restorative and holistic actions to get your thyroid up and running again. I agree wholeheartedly. It's been mind-blowing as a practitioner to watch it. And, and the pushback that my patients have gotten when we got them on thyroid, of course, we always ran tests immediately. Uh, once we got them stabilized on a dose, I would run tests. I would run labs. Often they came in with labs, and often we did preliminary labs. But sometimes, when the particularly with chronic pain, and that's a whole other conversation we could have. But with chronic pain, my job was to dose them out of symptomology, and it does take a, a hot minute for their bodies to adapt. So they can feel a little overly stimulated until things start to. It's a, it's like the receptors don't know what to do with the thyroid for a minute, you know, and they everything kind of freaks out for a minute, but. But as they were balancing out on the appropriate dose, and we never dosed super high, but we would dose aggressively. I was aggressive with it. And I would get them where they needed to go. We'd run labs. We'd verify that all lab markers were within normal and safe values. They were not having any tachycardia. They were not having any, you know, poor. In fact, everything was improving. They were pooping better. They were sleeping better. Their anxiety went away. They were doing great. Their pain was down. And then another doctor, including naturopathic doctors who really weren't versed well on thyroid treatment, would come in and say, oh, no, 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 no. You shouldn't be on this. Either take them off of it because their labs were normal. Duh, their labs were normal. They were on medication for it. (laughs) That's why their labs normalized. Or they would switch forms on me. And this happened constantly. And I was like, oh my God, this is the bane of my existence. It's such an art to get somebody appropriately balanced out on thyroid and they feel so much better. I'll tell you another one, which maybe the audience isn't aware of. When, and you might know this, I'm sure you do. When animal, my background is in animal behaviorism. When animals cannot become pregnant, the first thing they do for a female dog is give her thyroid. That's the very first thing. That's the very first intervention when we have an infertile animal. And yet in our society, they do all kinds of crazy whacked out things to their hormones to try to get them to drop an egg and ovulate. And all it comes down to is a little bit of thyroid. And so something my mentor taught me was 
when you give thyroid to a patient or you get their thyroid optimized, be careful because they maybe were using it as their birth control. They maybe were not aware of that their hypothyroidism was actually acting as their birth control. And so lots and lots of patients got pregnant while they were on thyroid. And guess what many of their OBs would do? You don't need to take that. It's dangerous. Pull them off the thyroid. They would miscarry. or the, And or the usually combined with progesterone therapy that I had them on. And they would miscarry or they would say, I'm afraid to stay on the thyroid and the progesterone. I'm afraid it's going to hurt the fetus. I'm like, well, you're either going to have a mentally retarded child because their thyroid was so low that they're going to have cretinism, or you're going to miscarry potentially because it was your hypothyroidism that was keeping you from holding a pregnancy. And so these are things that like, again, a really basic solution that has been turned into a really, you know, in modern medicine, in allopathic medicine, let's overcomplicate it and overdrug it and over, you know, it's wild. Yeah. And I think tissue hypo hypoxia, you know, lack of oxygen, uh, um, uh, lack of placental oxygenation occurring in the first trimester around about, you know, the end of the first trimester is the classic reason for miscarriage. And that can be thyroid related. And when you look at, there, there are so many studies um, that look at uh, aquatic organisms that show that metamorphosis is delayed, that shows that, that birth defects are occurring in, in humans. You can see obviously altered central nervous system uh, development disorders, neurogenesis not taking place. And this is where we're seeing movement disorders and kind of cognition disorders and, uh, and mental disorders increasing because thyroid hormones not happening. And, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Progesterone is another one of those components. Often when some, some females are hypothyroid, they're just not producing a progesterone. And it is the progestational hormone, probably a bad name for it because, you know, the ovaries produce uh, progesterone all year round because it's very protective. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, you know, uh, I, I've seen some uh, clients get pregnant, you, you know, just uh, supplementing with progesterone. Sometimes mm -hmm. there's a need for progesterone and thyroid. And they are the, 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 the key factors for maintaining gestation because they deliver oxygen. You know, the fetus doesn't have a thyroid gland until the second trimester. And, you know, you have uh, some support from something called beta-HCG, which is your kind of uh, human chironic gonadotropin, which is the um, thyroid analog to support the fetus. But if the mother isn't having enough thyroid in the first place, you know, that's going to be a significant burden to maintaining the pregnancy. Uh, and I think that's probably why physicians say, you know, oh, TSH is around about two-ish. I think we really should be looking at thyroid here, but not enough people are doing that. I personally think TSH should be well below one because it's a pituitary stress response. It's showing there's a lack of autonomous thyroid conversion. And we know that TSH is implicated in interleukin productions, fibrosis, perhaps it's it has some implications within breast cancer, you know, and these, these are the issues associated with high TSH production. It's like chronic, um, you know, uh, luteinizing and follicular stimulating hormone, prolactin production, ACTH production. They're all stresses that are perhaps showing there's a lack of autonomous conversion. And if you keep not looking at what the pituitary hormones are doing, which are a backup to this kind of inefficiency and lack of organization, I think it's where some aspects of medicine are completely broken because there are very clear solutions. And people will say, well, he's not a doctor. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But okay, but just look at the mechanisms. And does that make sense to, to you with your, your kind of you know, training? But maybe it doesn't because there's the... There's your nice algorithms in your endocrine textbooks. Go here, go here, go there, go there. Yo, that doesn't say to do that. Oh, well, you've, just, you've stopped thinking about the problem. Oh, uh, yeah. This year has shown me that a lot of doctors have stopped thinking about the problem. <laughs> it's 
so many ways. <laughs> so, you know, there's we don't graduate and and have this, we we get through and we take board exams, right? Not everybody actually has the critical thinking skills intact. I love this. I could talk to you all day. I don't want to keep you because I know you're a busy man and you actually have to go to bed where you are. So I I could keep you up all night. Jam, we we have to do a part two. This has been so much fun. I I've been so excited to talk to you and I so appreciate your generosity with sharing your brain and your knowledge and just the way that you put it in. I mean, hopefully for the audience, this wasn't over their heads. It's This is really approachable information. I encourage everybody to go back and listen to this again and take notes because there's a lot of gold in here. Where can people find you if they're interested in working with you or following you on Instagram? Where are the best sources to find you? Well, thank you. It's been an honor and a pleasure to be on your podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, I don't have, I'm not that kind of ubiquitous. I'm on Instagram as Tom Littlewood. I'm on Facebook as Balanced Body Mind. Uh, and that's pretty much it. I'm not really anywhere else, to be honest. Uh, and my website is balancedbodymind.com. So uh, yeah, that's it. Awesome. I will make sure that we have all of that in the show notes, including anything else you may want to share. So thank you so much, sir. This has been an honor. I hope you stay well. And I hope you will come back on my podcast soon and we can do a part two. I would love to. Thanks very much, Tina. Thanks for listening to the Dr. Tina show. Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tina, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A and Dr. Tina 2.0, as well as visit my website at drtina.com. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and mixed by Chris McCone. The theme song is by John the Gilt. As always, you can email the show at podcast at drtina.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you next week. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practices of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is intended not to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.